This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome back to The Bunker Daily with me, Naomi Smith. With all the rhetoric around global Britain, aliens visiting from Mars could be forgiven for thinking that the UK has never previously bothered to engage much with the rest of the world. And too often, it's a phrase that is used in the context of promoting British nativism, rather than using our soft power on the world stage to promote internationalism and cooperation between nations. Today, I'm joined by a particularly distinguished guest, Peter Westmacott, to discuss his new book, They Call It Diplomacy, which charts his four-decade-long career with the Foreign Office, during which time he served as British ambassador to three countries, was a deputy private secretary to the Prince of Wales, and held numerous other positions across the globe. Like many of you listening at home, he is a self-proclaimed internationalist and Europhile, and his book covers not only his fascinating career from Iran to the USA, but also his concerns for British influence in a post-Brexit era. Peter, welcome to the show. Where are you joining us from today? Thank you, Naomi. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I am in the middle of lockdown London in my flat in Victoria. Oh, you're very near me because I'm in Pimlico, <laughs> so we can, well, we can practically wave at each other. Practically, yeah. Now, our listeners might be political anoraks, but they're also very keen on gastronomic delights, too. And you've been ambassador to Turkey, France and the USA. I'll assume for now that France had the best wine, but where had the best food? (laughs) Well, if I'm honest, I think I have to say the best food was also in France. It might not have been always the healthiest. And I probably put on a few more kilos in France (laughs) than I did in the other places. But I'm afraid... I didn't do as much exercise in Washington as I should have done. Wow. But I think both for the wines and for the gastronomy, got it, actually, got to go I have to one. say France come, <laughs> takes first prize. I remember when I came back from my French exchange, my mother barely recognised me because I'd put on <laughs> so much weight and put me on a very strict diet once I was in. Um, okay, so moving on, we're not going to dwell too much on the pandemic because I think you know we're all sort of a bit pandemic out. But in your book, you say that there's been less international cooperation on COVID than there was even with the financial crisis of the late noughties. I'm really curious to know why you say that and you know your view on whether we're drifting further away from multilateralism, you know, as as a species. Well, I think from the UK's point of view there was uh, a good deal less international cooperation, a good deal less foreign policy, uh, whether it's coordination or whether it's just making foreign policy during the four and a half years, if you like, of of Brexit. So lots and lots of distraction and, of course, lots of political distraction and, and, and everybody tearing each other apart domestically. So I think the UK was, frankly, rather off the stage in terms of foreign policy and uh, working with allies on almost everything except 
immediate issues like you know Russians poisoning dissidents or or former spies uh, in the United Kingdom or dealing with cyber threats or dealing with terrorism. And then I think that during the, the period of COVID, although, thank God, we have had the opportunity of dealing with extraordinary technology. Imagine having had the COVID lockdowns in all of our countries five years earlier before we could speak in the way that we all do now, uh, virtually uh, and pretty painlessly a lot of mm. the time. But I think that despite all those wonderful you know, Zoom calls, um, Cisco calls, team calls, and the rest of them, which are there, and the WhatsApp messaging and, and the, the virtual quiz games and wine tastings <laughs> and everything else that we've all been doing, uh, I think it, we have lost uh, temporarily, I hope, uh, the habit of talking to other human beings and being in the same room and sensing the mood and the body language. All that is rather more difficult to do. Not impossible, but more difficult to do virtually. So I think in, in that sense, it's been tricky. But if we come right forward to the this week, if you like, I thought it was great that the new Secretary of State in the United States, um, my friend Tony Blinken, was there on the call with EU foreign ministers, not, yes. of course, including the British Foreign Secretary, and you know stayed on the line to listen to all 27 of them saying their piece. And... Um, that would not have been easy in pre-COVID times. And it's remarkable that both the technology and, uh, and the politics of Washington means that Washington, to coin a phrase from President Biden, is back in the business of doing diplomacy and working with allies and listening to what other people think matters. Now, I speak French, Spanish and Mandarin equally badly, but you speak Farsi <laughs> as well as a host of other languages brilliantly. To, w- to what extent is the British allergy to learning foreign languages to blame for our sense of exceptionalism? Or have I got it the wrong way round? And actually, because we feel so exceptional, we don't need to, to speak anything other than English? Well, I, I think you're, there's, there's something in what you're saying there, Naomi, but I, I think we shortchange ourselves a bit. Those uh, British subjects who do make an effort to learn foreign languages, uh, who either go and live abroad or are just, you know, interested in foreign cultures, I think we're not bad at it. You know, there are many more British diplomats, for example, who speak good Mandarin, Cantonese, Japanese, Thai, Indonesian, uh, Arabic, than there are diplomatic representatives of most other countries. I can't say all because, you know, I'm not authoritative. And so it's not as if we're totally incapable of learning foreign languages. I think it's just that not very many people make that effort. Or maybe the educational system makes it seem more attractive to learn other skills. Uh, But there's also a bit of what you're just saying, which I'm afraid goes back to 100 or 200 or 300 years, which is the old British tradition of feeling that because we had a big navy and because we were going to colonize the rest of the world, uh, if the locals didn't understand what we wanted, we'd just shout louder rather than (laughs) discover, discover more sophisticated ways of communicating with people of other cultures. Well, you describe Brexit rather beautifully, brutally in your book as an unnecessary act of collective self-harm, offshore islanders pulling up the drawbridge, never trusting or bothering to understand foreigners who don't speak English. And I'm curious, how do British attitudes towards those from different backgrounds, foreigners, compare to the people of the other countries you've worked in and and their views of of people that aren't of the same uh, nation as them? Well, it's a great question because, let's be honest, in most countries of the world, there's a degree of self-regarding nationalism. And that is often uh, commensurate with a sense of, well, uh, what matters is, is, is what I think, and the others have got to fit in with uh, my perception of my reality or my 
culture. If you take the case of France, which is in some ways, although it's the closest foreign country, in many ways culturally, I always thought it was the most different and the most fascinating. And, and mm. you know, I loved the years I lived in France, as you obviously did as well. I think there, there was puzzlement about the Brits. There was always the rivalry. Um, but as one, as I say in my book, you know, a very senior industrialist friend of mine who I'd known for many years asked me point blank one evening, you know, why is it you Brits hate us so much? <laughs> well, no, it wasn't Brits. It was English. Because I think, right, of course. I yeah, think, big, big no, difference. Big okay. difference. So the Scots are not like that, not in French uh, culture anyway. Uh, they have a very different sense of the old alliance. But, you know, there it was starkly, you know, well, why do you guys hate us so much? And I don't think they hate the English. And I don't actually think the English hate the French. But but I was thrown back, really, by the, the nature of the force behind that question, because it was obviously a feeling that there are lots of English people who simply don't like the French. And I thought about it a lot over the years. And actually, there's something in it. There is a sort of little England, a sense of, um, you know, can't trust, don't like the smelly French who, you know, this mm. and that, you know, awful sort of malevolent stereotypes and of course there are the same sort of prejudices towards us in other countries but not if you like that quite the same hostility although lots of distrust of us and lots of moments in our shared history where we have one view and the French have a very different view of what happened and why and then the other thing I would just touch on very very briefly is that I think a little further afield if you take the Middle East and probably South Asia as well, where Britain had you know, massively important history, was the dominant power for uh, many, many years, many centuries in some of these countries. We've left behind a certain amount of baggage. And so there's a lot of places where the instinctive reaction is to be doubtful of or suspicious of mm. the British. I found that in Iran extraordinary because not that long ago, 100 years ago, if you like, uh, the Russians and the British were carved up Iran into zones of influence. And we had a lot of influence. The Russians had a lot of influence. They seem to hold it against us a little bit more than the Russians, perhaps because we speak the same language as the Americans. And we were the little Satan and America was uh, the Indeed. big Satan. Yeah. But there were a lot of jokes about the Brits. And, uh, you know, for example, in the early days of the post-revolutionary Iran, the joke was if you, if you hold up Khomeini's beard, you will say Sachte Inglis, written, made in England, written wow. on his chin underneath. So, but those were from Iranians. You know, yeah, they, yeah. they quite liked the jokes at our expense based on the history and I'm afraid a sense of suspicion, but also sometimes grudging respect and affection. Yeah. Well, I mean, in your book, you obviously you talk about this, you know, why do English hate the French? Um, and and you you also make the point that actually perhaps that that was a generational thing and and with younger generations that is ebbing away and you you know you point to the fact that hundreds of thousands of young French professionals have chosen to make London their home in recent decades but sadly that trend seems to be reversing and there were reports at the start of this year with more than a million overseas nationals leaving the UK in the last few months and a, a very great number of those being EU 27 nationals leaving London. How significant a problem do you think that is for Britain culturally? I think it's very sad, Naomi. I wish it wasn't happening. One of my objections to the emphasis on immigration, which the Brexiteers placed during the referendum campaign, was that I thought it was utterly dishonest because what they were really talking about was immigration from outside the European Union. Uh, and they were trying to use Brexit as a means of uh, pushing that button. Um, but the result was going to be constraining immigration and freedom of movement from within the European Union, 
which wasn't actually the problem, because even a lot of the Brexiteers fully recognise that almost all of our service industries, whether it's hospitality or agriculture or financial services, rely on citizens of the elsewhere in the European Union. And so now we've got the problem of daffodil growers in Cornwall who can't get anyone to pick their daffodils and they're all going to rot because they used to be allowed in through freedom of movement from other European countries to help deal with the crops. So I think it's both sad it's a mistake economically, but I think it's also sad culturally that so many EU citizens who felt at home no longer feel as welcome as they did and are going back to their own countries. I think I think it's very sad. And one way that some British students and, and other young people, it's not exclusively for uh, university students, managed to learn another language and experience another culture was through the Erasmus programme, of which the UK is now no longer a member. But of course, it also enabled lots of uh, students from other countries to come and understand Britain better and British values and, and, and take that sense of understanding back with them to their home countries. What, what impact do you think it's going to have on us? And I think in particular, I'm interested in your view on the kinds of students who may have their eye on a, a postgrad job in the Foreign Office to have lost this exchange mechanism through the Erasmus programme. I think Erasmus was a wonderful programme. I never went on it myself. I was, I'm too old, but actually my eldest son did, went to, uh, went to learn what he called political science, but turned out to be skiing in Grenoble. <laughs> in Grenoble in France and had a wonderful time. So I think uh, it speaks rather good French as a result. So I think that uh, there's an awful lot to be said for that programme. And I love the idea of young pre and postgraduate students um, learning more about each other's culture, language, country. I'm not sure that it makes a big difference to those who are aspiring diplomats um, certainly if you're going to be, in my view anyway, any good at this business and, and being abroad representing your country, you've got to be interested in foreign language and foreign cultures. But I do think that it is a, a loss not to have such a tailor-made arrangement for young people to understand mm -hmm. better what the rest of the world is like, whether or not it makes a difference to their potential diplomatic careers. I think it's very important for us all to have a better understanding of other countries. Now, you joined the Foreign Office shortly before the UK uh, joined the EEC in 1973. What was it like to be involved in the diplomatic service just as Britain was becoming a major player within that bloc? In the early 70s, it, it, oddly enough, didn't feel as if life was suddenly very different, or it didn't where I was. Um, I started abroad in 1974 uh, in Iran, having done a couple of years in, in London, uh, beginning to learn the trade. And my abiding recollection is not so much that here we were in a great new family of nations and, and life was different and, and prosperous because there wasn't a single market then and you know, we didn't have customs union properly working. Uh, what I remember was the late 1970s, a winter of discontent, uh, mortgage rates of 15, 16%, very high interest rates, tragically high unemployment. Sick uh, man of Europe. Man of Europe, you know, we were not doing at all well, even though we joined the European Union in 1973, as you as you point out. So it took a while, I think, for the advantages of all that. And and guess what? Many of the things that the European Union eventually became very good at, uh, which was you know not just building up um, wine lakes and butter mountains, which were you know were a, a tragic example of, of waste and bureaucracy but really getting going with the Lisbon prosperity agenda and developing the single market. We never got as far as we'd like to have done with services, but with an awful lot of other things, 
and that ability to move goods across the channel in different directions you know bear in mind that a mini car made in birmingham the components cross the channel five times mm. before the finished product with all that with no bureaucracy no tariffs no non-tariff barriers no customers declarations made a huge difference to the competitiveness of uh, uk business uk industry but it wasn't there in the 1970s so it, it was it, it took a while to develop and it was thanks to the uk that the uk that the european union became much better at that sort of stuff yes and the rising tide in my view floated everybody's boat very much the liberalizing voice uh, at the table uh, often um, and and yes. a pity that we're not there anymore uh, on starting your placement at the european commission you sensed that not much work was being done by by some um, and that it afforded quite a luxurious lifestyle for many <laughs> employees has the project been the author of its own, own misfortune in that regard you know has it has sort of helped to legitimize brexit a grievance about the so-called brussels gravy train well, I, I, I put one or two little, uh, perhaps slightly unkind, uh, anecdotes in there from my brief experience of working in the Commission from 1978 to the beginning of 1980. Um, now, there were some you know, amazingly talented and hardworking people. Uh, there were definitely people who were there as part of a gravy train. And I think, you know, the favourable taxation, the tax-free shops, the uh, extra uh, prime or whatever you call it, bonus that you would get, supplement to your pay if you had a large families dependent on you in southern Italy and so on. You know, a lot of that meant that the, the, the terms, the perks of the job were very attractive. So the kind of sense of a, of a gap uh, between Europe and the project of the heart and what I would regard as the essential link to um, ordinary people in ordinary member states uh, worried me. You know, there, were, there, were, there was a dislocation. Mm. There, were, there was a mm. sense of Brussels, well, we're doing our thing, and the rest of the European Union, well, that's kind of separate. And I think uh, that was, in some ways, the beginning of a perception that Europe, Europe had its own agenda through its institutions, which was a, a bit detached from what people in member states really wanted. And I certainly felt, fast forwarding to 2016, you know, when I talked to my French friends before the referendum. And they were all saying, well, earlier than 2016, be very careful about calling a referendum yes. because you usually get a result which has got nothing whatever to do with the question really? on the order yeah. paper and everything to do with what side of bed you, you got, what side of the bed you got out of that morning, mm. or whether the weather's good or the weather's bad. And, or whether there's uh, a, an international tournament, football tournament going on, you go. and you know, stoking up nationalist sentiment, David Cameron. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but some of those perceptions... Uh, especially the idea, the fiction that mm. Europe was, was imposing laws on on, on British people uh, created by unelected bureaucrats, which was of course nonsense. Yeah, nonsense. All that sort of stuff, along with the square tomatoes and the straight bananas, <laughs> those those myths were invented on the back of a sort of sense that you know Europe was getting above itself and needed mm. to be brought down to size. Now you say that U.S. sanctions on Cuba are in no small part the reason behind Castro's long-running survival because they provided him with a ready-made foreign bogeyman to blame for all the ills befalling the Cuban people. And you know, having just talked about you know some of the the, the, the problems that you saw with the perception of how Brussels was running itself, it, is is the Johnson regime trying to achieve the same thing with regards to the EU? You know, nothing we're doing is wrong. It's you know whether it's the vaccine stuff or or the you know issues around shellfish being banned it's all the eu's fault they're the bogeyman don't blame us my sense is that at the moment no 
there certainly was a good deal of that, and there was some uh, brinkmanship before we ended up with the uh, Christmas Eve agreement, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, as it's called. It's no longer called a free trade agreement because it isn't a free trade agreement. Um, and there was a lot of finger pointing and saying, you know, they simply won't treat us as equal sovereigns. Well, actually, we're not equal. There's 27 of them and there's one of us. But uh, anyway, that was all part of the banter and part of the rhetoric. But I sense now, particularly over the issue of the, of the vaccines, where the president of the commission quickly recognized that they made a mistake, that there wasn't quite as much harumphing and uh, finger pointing. It was, of course, nonsense to say that we only were as brilliantly successful as we were with the vaccines because we'd done Brexit. Yeah. Uh, we already had the opt-out, just as we already had opt-outs from a whole series of other things, including uh, <laughs> including single currency, including Schengen. But I, I think at the moment, it seems to me that there, there is a sense of, uh, let's move forward now, let us try and calm things down, and look at ways in which uh, the United Kingdom can establish a functioning, decent, ideally friendly and productive relationship with the European Union, having um, put all that stuff behind us. doesn't mean to say that when one or two things go wrong, uh, that there won't be uh, people jumping up and down saying it's all the fault of dastardly Europeans. But I think the mood coming from the top of government at the moment seems to me is not that. I think it is uh, an attempt to be more constructive, more statesmanlike, and an awareness that on a lot of things that really matter to the UK, not just about what are we going to do with future financial services, for example, which is currently under discussion, but also how are we going to work together to deal with some of those big international challenges which are still out there, like you know, cyber offences and terrorism and climate change and so on. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about conflict resolution, because I often say that I consider the EU to be the greatest peace project in, in human history. And during your time in the Levant, and in particular, I'm talking about Cyprus here, which, of course, is a divided island between the Greek Cypriot South and the Turkish controlled North, you worked very hard with the UN to broker a settlement which ultimately didn't succeed. Do you think the EU missed a trick by letting Cyprus join without resolving the issue? And then in some kind of post-Erdogan future, can you see a time when Turkey would join the EU and, and would the Cyprus issue have to be resolved first? Um, I think it was very sad that uh, the A10, as they were called, the, the 10 accession countries, all including Cyprus, joined the European Union on the 1st of May in 2004, was it, or five? Um, just a few days after the United Nations brokered uh, peace plan for the future of Cyprus was rejected uh, by the Greek Cypriots, uh, supported by the Turkish Cypriots mm -hmm. and by the Turkish mm -hmm. government. And it was literally days afterwards. And for some time before that, I do remember Prime Minister Erdogan saying, well, what if we agree to a deal and the other lot don't? Are you still going to let them into the European Union? Because that would be very unfair, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. And we all Europeans would say, well, don't worry your little head about that. And if it does, well, you know, we'll, we'll see things right. Well, we didn't see things right. But it's a tragedy because it has also undoubtedly, in my view, had a major impact on the accession negotiations between Turkey and the European Union, and indeed on, on domestic political and, and legal and social uh, and human rights developments uh, inside Turkey, because I think public opinion and political opinion 
has begun to feel, you know what, because of Cyprus, we're we're never going to get there. So we'll just do our own thing. Turning to another divided island, let's touch on Ireland. Uh, I grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Um, And and you also played a role in brokering communication between the two sides there. And your cousin was very tragically killed by the IRA in 1980, and, and he was in the SAS. Having such deep personal connections to the Troubles in Northern Ireland, did that make it easier or more difficult for you to get involved in conflict resolution there? I think, uh, although I visited Northern Ireland in in different capacities, uh, working in the Foreign Office um, during the Troubles, um, my involvement really was very much more with Irish America, rather than making any material difference, to be really honest. Although I talked to civil society on both sides when I visited Northern Ireland, I, I can't honestly say I made much of a difference there. But in the United States, yeah, this was a big part of the political work that I was doing, certainly my first time, which was the time when uh, prominent Irish-American senators, including one uh, Joseph Biden, um, (laughs) encouraged President Clinton to take a risk for peace and grant visas to Jerry Adams and Martin yes, McGuinness to come to right, the United yeah. States at a time when John Major's government really did not think this was helpful mm-hmm. because they did not feel that Sinn Féin had moved far enough to renounce the use of violence as a political weapon. So it was a very fraught time. From my point of view, oddly enough, uh, the fact that I had a, a close relative bearing my name who had been killed in Northern Ireland meant that Quite a lot of the people who were naturally sympathetic to the IRA and even to the use of of weapons began to see that there was a personal element to this and maybe they should be listening to the other side of the argument. So while we're on your your time in the States, your your term as US ambassador ended before Trump's arrival at the White House. But did you detect that Trumpism was already beginning to grip swathes of the country before you left office? And, And how did it feel to be leaving at a time when such a person was taking the reins? I don't think I did, Naomi, although in the very last uh, little political breakfast I did with some of my favourite pundits where we were all looking at the domestic politics, which was in January of 2016 before Donald Trump was elected in November of that year, uh, I did say that I thought that Trump was going to be the uh, Republican candidate. Um, And not one of us believed that he would be the next president of the United States. He didn't think he would win even on the day, remember, in in November 2016. So, no, I can't claim any credit for having seen Trump coming. Did the Brexit vote happening sort of five months before help change that, do you think, and, and make his victory more likely? He says it did. Uh, he was very clear that uh, he was, of course, a powerful Brexiteer without necessarily understanding exactly what it meant for either American or British interests. <laughs> right. But he kind of liked the iconoclastic part of it and, you know, let's socket the elites. And he hated the European Union anyway for reasons that I never really understood. And he did say that it did help uh, get him over the line when it came to 2016. So, I think it probably did. You know, this was part of a broader sense of a lot of people in a lot of countries feeling that they'd not been listened to, that their interests had been neglected, that their incomes were stagnant, that uh, political elites were doing their own thing and, and not caring about them, that we'd allowed free trade to permit the Chinese to eat our lunch, you know, and, and, and. There were a lot of different issues out there which were causing a, a rise of discontent and, in some cases, you know, populism, uh, and, alas, uh, the beginning of an attack on, on, on truth and facts as being something which were, you know, 
part of the elite's armory, but, but not what was interesting ordinary people. All that, which Trump fermented, of course, with, with, with great enthusiasm in the coming years. But I think there was a wave which he rode very successfully that year. And I do think, actually, that the Brexit referendum was a part of it. And finally, during your time in, in Washington, Peter, President Biden was, of course, then Vice President Biden. And, and he's now taken the US back into the Paris Agreement. He's halted the US withdrawal from the World Health Organization. So he's very much been proving his multilateralist credentials. But how much further do you think he can push the internationalist agenda given the scale of polarization in America now? The polarization inside America has a great deal to do with what's happening in that country. Yes, um, the, the Trumpians love the concept of America first, but they don't much like paying higher prices for the tariffs which Trump has unilaterally imposed on everybody from China to the United Kingdom. You know, They don't want to pay 25% more for their bottle of Scotch whiskey. Uh, which is what they're having to do now, for example, because of Trump, never mind shortbread biscuits and cashmere jumpers. <laughs> so um, I think a lot of that polarization is between Democrats uh, and Republicans, alas. You know, it goes back to the days probably of Newt Gingrich, who, who came to Washington with a kind of scorched earth approach when he became the leader, uh, the Republican leader of the um, Speaker of the House of Representatives in uh, 1994. And I think since then, there's been a great deal of, of division and the days of smoke-filled rooms when uh, well-meaning senior members of the two parties would uh, broker a compromise for the good of the country and the nation, uh, largely gone for the time being. Uh, but I think that's a lot about domestic. I, I sense that what the Biden administration are doing, and he's appointed some extremely talented and experienced foreign policy people who are used to working with allies, you know, engaging with the rest of us on dealing with things that really matter to Americans, is not at the moment, anyway, coming at a, a political cost. It's, it's not as if the polarization in America means we hate all foreigners. It doesn't at all. I mean, it does mean that there are certain countries, Iran is one, Turkey, I'm sorry to say, is another, where there is a kind of bipartisan hostility on Capitol Hill in, in Congress about what's going on in those countries or what those countries have done to uh, their neighbours or are threatening to do to some of their neighbours. But it doesn't mean that there is a, a retreat from America engaging with the like-minded, with close allies, uh, in order to pursue interests which Americans think are important to them. And that goes for China. It goes, I think, for dealing with world trade. I think United Nations, stability. Uh, what to do about Russia. You know, I think Trump was something of a minority in refusing to say boo to President Putin. Uh, I don't think that's where the majority of mainstream Republicans are. They don't much like a lot of what happens in that country. And they don't much like giving uh, Kim Jong-un a free pass and, on the nuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. So I think that there's uh, there's quite a lot of scope for the administration to restore the concept of working with allies but I do think it also means that those allies are going to be expected to shape up and be part of a more internationalist approach and uh, ready to make a difference. And you know, the European Union has, has not been a big player on foreign policy issues and is quite divided on many of those things. That may produce an opportunity for the United Kingdom outside the European Union to be an effective partner of the United States. But I've always worried that outside the EU, our voice may count for less. So uh, there is that challenge, but it may be that we are a freer agent uh, and it may be that we have got the potential to be a significant uh, uh, partner and ally with real clout uh, in the new world of post-Brexit. But we are going to have to come up with the goods.
We are. Peter, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. That was absolutely fascinating. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And listeners, don't forget, you can find Peter's book, They Call It Diplomacy, at headofzeus.com or any major book retailer. And if you've been enjoying the show, do make sure you're following The Bunker on Twitter and Facebook. And if you're so inclined, please do leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find the show. That's it from me, and I'll see you all again soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith, and the producer was Andrew Harrison. Assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovic, and audio production was from me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.